Hello from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and this is Monocle on Sunday. Coming up on today's programme, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be joining us to tell us about his busy week. Also ahead, my panellists, Terry Stiastny and Tessa Siskovitz, will be here in the studio in London to round up today's main news stories. Plus, Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay, brings us the headlines from his patch and Andrew Muller reflects on the news cycle. We learned that forecasting the weather in Hungary is not for the faint of heart, thin of skin, weak of knee or saggy of spine. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Sunday, live from London. Well, let's cross straight to the Swiss Alpine Resort of St Moritz to speak to our editorial director, Tyler Brillet. Good morning to you, Tyler. Good morning, Georgina. You've just sent me a picture of the view. Wow. (laughs) Describe to our listeners what it is you can see. Well, right now I'm standing uh, just above the the village of Samaritz. And, of course, uh, I think our listeners will probably have a good idea where that is within Swiss geography. We've broadcast from here many times. It is an absolutely gorgeous end of summer day. Not quite cloudless skies. There's a they call it sort of the, the schlange, the sort of, you can see the photo I sent you, Georgina, there's a, uh, this, this sort of very sort of long sort of snaking cloud that sort of runs down the valley, but it's just the sun all around. And that sense of autumn is rather close, uh, but of course the, the region and the town still trying to hold on to a bit of summer. And there's something slightly melancholy, isn't there, about the end of season? There is, uh, because you do feel like this is going to be the moment, you know, again, not quite today. And there's something, something quite interesting as well about, and we'll come back to that in terms of changing economies and changing seasons and what the pandemic brought. But yes, there is that slight sense that terraces will be folded up. Uh, sun, stripy sun awnings uh, will be sort of pulled back uh, for, for the rest of the season. But here's the interesting thing, because um, I was talking to some hotel owners over the past two days, and, and this is the remarkable thing. Summer season always has been very important for the Alpine region, but of course they've never been able to get the same uh, room uh, rates that you would, of course, get during the winter time, and that has completely changed. So they said this summer they've been getting the exact same rates as they have during a traditional winter season. The other thing is that the season is going to run longer. So even though it does have that yes end of summer feel, uh, in the, traditionally the hotels have closed within the first week of September. Uh, now hotels are staying open until late October. And that has a lot to do with people were able to rediscover the mountains. We're, we're able, <clears throat> pardon me, we're able to, of course, um, experience summer in a very different way during the pandemic period when it was very difficult to cross borders. Absolutely. Now, it was, was it March that we were there together? It was. <laughs> it was, uh, was it March or even, <clears throat> maybe even uh, early, early April. Uh, but I think it was, it was end of March. And that was, really the end of the season, uh, when, of course, uh, we were broadcasting and doing this show live together, side by side, at uh, the Supermountain Market Coffee. Oh, it was such fun, wasn't it? And we also had the wonderful Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer uh, with us, who was talking about his book, uh, Grand Hotel Europa. What a character. <laughs> what a character. I, I cut such a dash. Uh, I've never seen a gentleman with quite an array of uh, of rings, uh, <laughs> as, Mr., as Mr. Pfeiffer had. But also, he was just a completely fitting character uh, for the end of the season. As you said, there was, at that point as well, that sort of sense of, of melancholy uh, that, of course, all of these properties... Uh, and that was interesting. We were at Supervisor House, and they, they, I think you were, we were both fascinated by the fact that they sort of empty out all of the rooms, 
uh, everything sort of goes into storage. Everything gets fixed and refitted for the season to come. Uh, and that's what, exactly what happened. I was at uh, Subretta House yesterday for a very nice wedding. Uh, but, yeah, as, as we were saying uh, moments ago, uh, yeah, there's probably a little, no, I guess another month or so to run. Uh, and, and then it's going to be the same procedure. But then again, this year, there'll only be maybe six, seven weeks that they're closed. And then, of course, they start again earlier for the Christmas season. So you start to move, Georgina, to this period where, as we were saying when you were here last time as well, that, you know, that, that these regions were always closed. They were always sort of shuttered for springtime um, and the autumn season. So we're moving closer to an alpine season that might turn out to be 12 months a year. Mm-hmm. And Tyler, what, in your discussions with these hotel owners and just looking ahead to, to obviously a cold winter, but with this looming energy crisis, I wonder how that's going to impact on hotels, given that their bills to heat their guests are going to be so much bigger. Yeah, well, it's going to be more gathering around fireplaces, I would imagine. This is one of the stories in Switzerland at the moment, is that already... Uh, the forward-thinking Swiss, you know, as early as July, there was already a shortage of firewood. Uh, and, and we were, in fact, trying to uh, order some firewood for our apartment recently. And they said, look, at, they said, you, you can't expect a delivery. Don't even call us until, until November because there's such a run on wood. So I know maybe there's going to be a rethink, Georgina. Uh, lots of cozy blankets around, uh, you know, fireplaces. Uh, lots of warm bodies gathered uh, in lobbies. Uh, a slightly new approach to hospitality. Mm, absolutely. Tyler, what's ahead for you this week? Uh, this week, um, well, I'm going to be seeing you, Georgina, hopefully, if you're around on uh, on Tuesday, because uh, I'm in Paris uh, at the start of the week, making my way across to London, um, and a busy day in, in London. And I think, do I have to do a fire inspection when I come over? <laughs> Well, we did have the most extraordinary. Uh, it was quite funny in the end, I have to say. We were broadcasting uh, and the briefing was on air and uh, the lights started flickering and suddenly they went off. <laughs> what does one do? Does one continue broadcasting in the dark? We did. <laughs> uh, but it was um, it was um, a, a little bit of a jolt, shall we say, and, and quite a, a novel way to be on air. <laughs> I, I can imagine. And uh, I guess we were... We were able to uh, not quite fix the problem, but I think we were back on air within within two hours or so uh, after what I guess turned out to be uh, a faulty set of fuses. It, it was, but you know what, what really impressed me actually was the way that seamlessly the building kind of swung into operation. I have to say, Brenda on front desk is absolutely amazing. She took control of the situation. Everybody was calmly ushered out of the building. Josh Fennett stepped up into his fire marshal um, position. Uh, he, he was a bit sad that he couldn't wear a high-vis jacket though or a, or a special hat, but he, he managed to get us all out on the page. And it was, all, I have to say, quite jolly and very exciting when the three fire engines turned up. There was quite a lot of interest in the firemen, too. Oh, well, no, 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 no doubt. Uh, Georgina, uh, I will look forward to hopefully seeing you at our little end of summer uh, cocktail uh, for, for the team if you're around uh, on, on Tuesday. Absolutely look forward to it. Tyler, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Georgina. That was Tyler Brule speaking to us from Sam Moritz. Get inspired with Monocle's September issue as you head back to work and put those dreams cooked up in the summer sun into action. Our business pages whisk you from an entrepreneurial academy for would-be founders in Mexico to the medical startup scene of France. We also look at the expansion of Stockholm's Ethem Hotel, tour three smart media HQs built with ambition, and meet the architects returning to Tunis to put their stamp on a city and protect its modernist buildings. 
Elsewhere, we meet the Indonesian president, and we travel throughout Ukraine, five months on from Russia's invasion. We report on the stories of its people as they pass through their daily routines, as well as fighting a war at the same time. We're fighting for every citizens, and it's a big tragedy for our hometown, for our country. I'm a former boxer, and one saying, no fight, no win. And that's why we're still fighting. Read their stories and much more besides in the September issue of Monocle magazine, available to order today, or you can subscribe online and get access to our digital editions at monocle.com. listening to Monocle on Sunday, live from Midori House in London with me, Georgina Godwin. And we're going to bring in our panellists now. I'm joined in the studio by the political journalist and author, Terry Stiastny, and also by Tessa Siskovitz, who is UK correspondent for the Austrian magazine Profile. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Uh, Let's look to Russia and Ukraine, first of all, because we know that there are renewed uh, uh, concerns about the Zaporizhia nuclear plant uh, and uh, uh, both sides accusing each other of of attacking it. Uh, Tessa, what's what's your take on the latest from the region? Well, I wouldn't sort of speculate uh, much about who is, uh, you know, who is uh, responsible for the tension around the nuclear plant but you know there was a quarter of the electricity coming from their supply for the Ukraine so their interest in shooting around there is really limited and I think the warnings that um, President Zelensky is coming up with that um, he's really worried that something happens there is of course the main concern Uh, At this moment, I mean, we would still hope that nobody else comes to stupid ideas. But at the moment, we see this deterioration of um, because the the battles don't really lead to any big change in the situation on the ground, that these crazy attacks that happen behind the, the, the lines are increasing. And that and that's the really big danger now that people lose their nerves on both sides and do something very, very stupid. Mm. Uh, And that is of huge concern, isn't it, Terry? I mean, yes, or even just the danger of an accident, the danger of a shell that goes in the wrong direction, the danger of something just happening, you know, that's not intentional. I mean, obviously, you know, the IAEA are trying to get in there, trying to go and uh, inspect the nuclear plants and trying to get international access. But, you know, even the negotiation of that has been been really tricky and they were hoping hoping to go this week. But whether that happens or not, you know, we'll, we'll have to see but it does just just shows you the the instability of the situation uh, and then of course in Russia they are desperately trying to recruit more people to join the army yes and that's of course becoming increasingly more difficult you know the in the regions they can go and collect people easier but uh, you don't get uh, the <laughs> cities uh, you know even if we always hear that there's so much support in Russia, 60% are still supporting this uh, so-called military uh, operation. But uh, to send your son into a war that is 
a hopeless enterprise is, of course, not an easy thing to do. So I guess uh, the Russian army then is already hugely in problems, in not only with people, but also with weapons, and, uh, and especially because there is no real plan where to go in the end. You know, they are too weak to take the whole country. So it's all about battling and trying to hold on to territories that they already uh, occupied. But these territories are sort of scorched earth. I mean, it's destroyed. So everything is so far away from a victory for Putin that it will be increasingly more difficult to recruit soldiers to go there. And the papers today are saying exactly that, that it is scorched earth, but that there's toxins in the soil and that uh, all sorts of problems like that. So it's going to make it incredibly hard when this is finally over, uh, Terry, for for Ukraine to to, to bounce back economically uh, and, of course, emotionally. Uh, yes, I mean, that's one of the... It's quite interesting looking at... So uh, when Boris Johnson visited Kiev this week, one of the things that he was promising was not so much um, military aid, but it was a plans for Britain to come in and help later on reconstructing infrastructure. And it's quite an interesting shift that, you know, obviously the US is still promising large, large amounts of military aid, but they're saying we will help you to rebuild roads and railways and, and, and power stations and things like that. But the question is, you know, when is that going to happen? And when can you start rebuilding a country where there is still, you know, a war going on. So, mm. you know, although there's these promises, you know, when is that going to be a realistic thing? It's been six months now since this this uh, war started uh, and there are concerns that there's fatigue from the public uh, and indeed from, from other nations who are just getting, frankly, bored of it. How is it being reported in Austria? Well, we are looking this week in Profil, for example, we did a story where we talked to experts about how to achieve not a peace agreement necessarily because obviously that's very far away, but how to sort of approach negotiations, how to build something into the direction of uh, ceasefire and some of these things. And um, everyone agreed that, of course, the exhaustion is the first thing that has to happen, not so much in Western, in Western Europe in the support, but also with the parties who are in, uh, directly engaged in this war. And so this will be an absolutely horrifying, terrible situation now this fall because they are not stopping to fight. The, as you say, the sort of support is getting, you know, it's just the interest is going down. It doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that people are not sympathetic to the Ukrainians and trying to help them. But wherever it's needed, where people need to house uh, uh, refugees for a longer perspective and all these kind of things, of course, this will become more difficult, especially looking at the energy crisis and people will be becoming more wary about offering housing to refugees if they also struggle to pay their own energy bills. Mm. And Terry, that's a big story in the papers here today, is that a lot of Ukrainian uh, refugees here might suddenly become homeless because uh, it was for a limited time, the scheme for people to go into people's homes, for refugees to be housed in people's homes. That's coming to an end. Uh, What's going to happen? Well, yeah, that's, you know, another thing in the the next Prime Minister's inbox that they will have to decide is, do you, can, you know, do you accept that people who have come from Ukraine are not just necessarily in the country temporarily, that they might be need to be given, you know, longer time to stay and then be, you know, be helped to find their own house rather than stay, you know, as guests with families, which lots of people have been, been very happy to do up until now. But yes, do you put people on a more permanent footing while accepting that, you know, that it's not going to be possible for them to 
to go back home yet. Yeah. Tess, I know that you've been looking at sort of what traps the EU and the West need to avoid this winter. But what, what are the, the, the key issues there, do you think? Well, if you look at it a little bit from a psychological point of view, so what uh, uh, Putin will be watching very closely if the EU, how the EU gets through this winter, where he has waged not only a military operation against the Ukraine, but also an economic war. And these two things are totally intertwined, of course. And so if the European Union now starts questioning, if some of the member states start questioning the sanctions, for example, um, and the disunity or the different positions between the EU is uh, becoming apparent, will be in big trouble because if you look at the Eastern European members like Poland and the Baltic Republics, they are for very strong sanctions, not only because their, their solidarity with the Ukrainians is very strong, but because they feel concerned for their own safety. So in solidarity also with the Eastern European members of the European Union, the Western European members of the European Union should be very, very careful to move away from a common position on sanctions against Russia because everything else would be affected if this unity on the sanctions collapses. Mm. Clearly, all the other areas of EU politics will be affected. So, you know, if you want something to do with uh, helping you know, if there's an, another COVID wave, is if there's another energy crisis uh, discussion about how to distribute uh, aid within the European Union, all these big decisions where the European Union has shown quite a lot of unity in the last years and in the end always worked it out, is also dependent on the fact that we need to keep unity on the sanction issue. So that would be a big trap to fall in if we don't understand that we have to come out of this winter of discontent on the other side in spring as a unified European Union bloc, because that's the only way how Putin also will respect that we are sort of serious about what we are saying, that we are sort of defending our values in the Ukraine and not only the Ukrainian sort of uh, civilians as such. And the second trap, if I just add this quickly, is I think the idea to um, not give tourist visas to any Russians anymore is a big trap too, because we need to support Russians who criticize their own regime. We need to support people who want to come in order also to make a difference, to show that there's a Russian public that is in opposition to Putin's regime. And if we say that no one is a good Russian because we don't give anyone a visa anymore, we're really falling into a big trap because that will weaken any discontent and any dis, uh, dissent that is now possible still in Russia. Just picking up on the, on the energy aspect of it, I mean, Terry, there is disunity. Countries say we can't cope without Russian gas. People don't want their citizens to freeze. Well, this is, inter this is the, one of the real challenges for, for all the governments is how do you communicate? You know, we're going to have a horrible few months possibly, but you need to make sacrifices and we still need to support Ukraine. I mean, it's interesting, we saw uh, Macron earlier this week, you know, giving a speech where he said, look, you know, the sort of the good times are over for now. Things are going to be really hard. We are going to have to get used to this and sort of really telling people how it is. Obviously, you know, he doesn't have to face election again. So it's kind of easier for him to stand up and say, look, this is you. We're going to have to make some cutbacks. We're going to have to make some sacrifices. And in, in Germany, you know, the government has been saying, well, look, public buildings can make, you know, we can cut the temperatures. We can not heat corridors. We can uh, not light up uh, sort of public buildings at night, things like that, which might help on the margin. Whereas in the UK, one of the problems we that we've had is that, again, you know, the two candidates to be prime minister are both saying, 
you know, yes, of course, we absolutely need to support Ukraine, but they're not really publicly getting to grips with how much they're going to have to do to help people in terms of the cost of fuel. And the danger is that the public says, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my extra jumper, I'm turning my thermostat down, can we do something about Ukraine and Russia now? Because I don't see why I should have to, to pay the price for that, literally, you know, the, the cost of it in terms of, in terms of energy. And people may just sort of get tired of the situation. Well, absolutely. And we're in a position now where the Prime Minister, he's still the Prime Minister uh, for, for a few, a couple of weeks yet, uh, seems to be completely absent. Uh, and neither leadership contender is, 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 is stepping up to the plate, Tess. Yeah, of course. It's, a, it's an election campaign. So, so they are promising everything now and there's no clear plan for the, for the fall. But as you also read this morning in all the papers, I mean, there, there are lots of plans for how she has to roll back Liz Truss in case she makes it to Downing Street. Rishi Sunak has been a little bit more careful already from the start because he sort of looked at the numbers in the last years very closely. But it's in any case, I mean, I think all the governments have to totally adapt to this situation and because it's going to be much worse than we think now. And it's interesting, It's um, Terry, you said that about uh, people will say, like, shall we do something about uh, Russia and the sanctions and all these kind of things? I think it's very important to repeat to the populations also that it's not the sanctions that caused the energy crisis. It's the war that Putin started in the Ukraine. So if we lift sanctions or not, doesn't matter in the next six to eight months for the war itself because the war is running. So the sanctions is a way to say, like, we do not want to support this regime by buying uh, gas and oil. It's also important to say that gas in the European Union from Russia is not sanctioned, so we can buy the gas if we want. But it's also, again, important to diversify away from Russian energy supplies in order to build our own strength uh, in the in the long term. So all this is very important also, not only for the measures that governments take, but also the politics that that they put in place now to keep the populations together, because we'll see a lot of, you know, uh, problems and, and also social unrest, I think, in the next months. And we have to keep very cool nerves as in the media as well as governments to also what um, how we report and how the messages are being sent out. What is important this winter is to sort of save energy, for example. I don't see this at all here in Britain that this is being discussed, much more discussed in Germany, for example, in Austria. In France, they don't have, as you said, not such a problem because they have no elections coming. And also they have uh, nuclear, nuclear power. power. Mm. Yeah. So they're in a better position. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because when you look at the, the bigger picture, what, what's being fought for here is the, the freedom of Europe. And the people that are paying the biggest sacrifice are, of course, Ukrainians who are dying in thousands. And it does seem a, a, a little churlish for us to go to, to be whining about being cold. Well, I, I mean, whining a bit, being cold, this is really, it's going to be very tough for so many people, especially here where poverty before the energy crisis. I read this that 500,000 children uh, were living in poverty and, and people were not sure if to feed them or to heat the room. Mm. Yeah? So this is going to be very tough. We have to take this also very seriously. And we have to ask the governments also to really provide intelligence measures so that especially these very poor, are being helped. You know, they don't need to give a blanket uh, check to every household in the UK or all over Europe to people who can afford to pay higher bills to a certain extent. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, it's a huge crisis here in Britain. And uh, as we said, nobody really seems to be revealing their plans. Now, Liz Truss is the person that we assume is going to win the the, the Tory leadership. What challenges are in store for her? I I see there's a very big piece uh, in the Sunday Times today. Uh, yes, I mean Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times is usually the person that has all the sort of the inside gossip uh, from Westminster on what's going on. And the surprising thing this week is, you would think that the Conservatives, after the year that they have had, would think, okay, well, whoever wins this election, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, we're with them now until the next general election. Let's get behind. This is apparently not how it is going down among the Conservative backbenchers because. Uh, you know, Rishi Sunak was obviously kind of the leader among the Conservative MPs. He won the largest vote. However, Liz Truss appears to be for now the favourite among uh, the members of the party in the country. And apparently, there, according to Tim Shipman, there are now already whispers going around about another leadership challenge that even, you know, before the next election... Um, it said MPs are asking, what if we put in letters of no confidence against Liz Truss and what if Boris ran again? Nothing in the Conservative Party rules prevents an attempt to oust a leader as soon as they are elected. Uh, which does, you know, I'm saying this is this is possibly fantasy, it's even noted here. But I mean, the idea that they would have the appetite for uh, another leadership contest, you know, the, the Conservative Party just would seem to be uh, com- completely savaging itself. But, you know, probably more seriously and less... Flippantly, there are going to be huge problems, not for whoever wins, with managing the party, with managing the MPs, with getting them to vote through difficult you know, plans, whether those are tax cuts, if you're Liz Truss, or whether those are plans to try to help uh, more people with, for instance, their, their fuel bills and increasing um, benefits, possibly, uh, in, in Rishi Sunak's case. So, you know, getting getting agreement for the difficult decisions that are going to have to be made over the next six months or so are, is going to be really, really difficult. Why is it so opaque what those decisions are going to... I mean, there, there just doesn't seem to be any kind of public plan. Yes, it is strange. I mean, obviously, you know, the Treasury at the moment in the current government is presumably is working on some plans. And I think it's partly this this difficulty of, of planning to get them through. But you'd think, you know, as the potential next prime minister, you would want to be able to come out and say, this is what I would do. This is how I would help people. But then the candidates must think that either that, that that's not helping them in terms of the campaign or they genuinely don't yet have access to the information as to what it's actually possible to do. And, you know, somebody is going to have to make really quick decisions in the next couple of weeks. Otherwise, people are going to be in in real trouble. Mm. I mean, Tess, um, uh, um, Truss has so little support amongst Tory MPs, as as Terry pointed out. Sunak was the clear favourite there. Uh, And it would seem that although the the, uh, Tory party itself will vote her in, the general public isn't keen on her either. I wonder how she's viewed uh, in the rest of Europe. Well, you could see that this this little exchange that uh, uh, Macron and his response to Liz Truss um, slamming France as a country where one doesn't know if it's a friend or a foe. And he very carefully said Britain will always be a friend. So that can tell gives you an an idea that she's not necessarily seen with a lot of respect. And we see a lot of stories this morning also all over Europe where there's speculation about how bad badly she's sort of considered to be and and will be. But I mean, she's not there yet. So I think generally people are quite careful to it. It's just that it's quite clear to the European public also that after, if you, you know, fast 
backward to 2015. David Cameron sitting there with a majority uh, in, in, in a, with the government with the Liberal Democrats. And you look seven years later at a radicalized uh, Brexit Island government where people are trying to still uh, um, look at Brexit as something that is positive, although it's quite obvious that there's not a lot of positive coming from it. In the middle of an energy crisis and after a COVID pandemic, and now you have a, 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 a conservative party where sort of most of the like safe hands of the civilized conservative center the One Nation conservatives are more or less sidelined. And it's a game between radicalized um, Brexiteers that are fighting for power. It's sort of, it's it's like Macbeth in the later stages. Yeah, So we'll see how that will go along. But I'm sure she will come up with plans now. She will sort of roll back totally from, from the campaign promises because there, there needs to be some action. And all the ministers who are now in charge will not be in charge in a few days. So, mm-hmm. But I mean, meanwhile, she is ignoring her, her actual job, which is foreign secretary. I mean, those remarks, she is our top diplomat. You don't go... <laughs> yes, it's it really... I mean, I think she you know, she was playing to the audience there and, and probably forgetting forgetting the, the day job um, to a certain extent. Um, but I just recommend to anybody who has not seen the clip of Emmanuel Macron's reaction when he was when he was asked about this. He took a sort of a long intake of breath and then kind of went before giving quite a clever diplomatic answer, which was, you know, Britain is our friend uh, regardless of its leaders. And sort of really, <laughs> and I, I, I would just milk it for all it was worth. If I was like, I mean, every phone call the, next to the, the foreign minister speaking to Liz Truss, you just go, oh, Jerry's out, is it? Oh, OK. You, know, just, you, know, you can use that. But more seriously, there are still big issues, you know, obviously with Britain, you know, how does the incoming prime minister deal with the Northern Ireland protocol? How do you deal with the issue of migrants crossing the channel, uh, the issues of sewage in the channel. You know, there's so many bilateral issues where you do actually need uh, whatever you privately think of your other European leaders to be able to have a good working relationship with them. And it's just, it's not really worth it for a few votes in the short term to try and, you know, set this off. And then presumably imagine all the other diplomats running around going, I'm sure she didn't mean that. Well, it was a kind of heat of the moment. You know, people have got to... You know, but it's it's you know we're quite we're good to have a few more, a bit more grown up statesman like behaviour, but you know after the last few years it would be it would be excellent <laughs> to see it. But I'm not not that hopeful at the moment. No. Uh, listen, do stay with us, uh, Terry and Tessa, uh, because uh, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. In Libya, at least 23 people were killed and dozens more were wounded in a day of deadly clashes between political factions in the capital, Tripoli. The UN has called for an immediate stop to hostilities. Libya has been in chaos since the NATO-backed uprising in 2011 that ousted the long-serving ruler, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Despite this, the country has enjoyed a relatively calm period over the last two years. Shellfire at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine fueled fears of major disaster as both sides kept blaming the other while Russian forces targeted towns on the far side of the river from Europe's largest atomic plant. Despite the danger, officials from the United Nations nuclear watchdog are still waiting for clearance to visit the plant on the southern front line of the war. 
In the early hours of this morning, three off-duty Dutch commandos who were in the US for training were shot and wounded outside a hotel in the city of Indianapolis. The three men who were in the US for training were members of the Commando Corps, one of the special operations units in the Netherlands Armed Forces. Local police said they believed there had been an earlier altercation between the men and another person or group. And Colombian President Gustavo Petro, who took office earlier this month, has proposed a multilateral ceasefire to all illegal armed groups operating in the country as part of an effort to promote peace and end decades of internal conflict. Various irregular armed organisations have shown their intention to seek an end to the confrontation, said Petro, the first leftist president in Colombia's history. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, we're going to get a roundup of stories making headlines in the Balkans now with Monocle's correspondent in the region, Guy Delaunay. Good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Georgina. Drumroll. Serbia's new prime minister is... It's same as the old prime minister. It's Anna Brnovic. <laughs> she is back, back, back uh, in the prime minister's office uh, where she's been since 2017. And this was all announced yesterday, Georgina, uh, by President Aleksandr Vucic, who'd kept everybody waiting since elections way back in April uh, to announce that, yep, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, and is that going to make much of a difference then <laughs> within the political <laughs> landscape? Well, yes and no. I mean, it's very interesting that he's reappointed Anna Banovic uh, because, among other things, she's rare in that she's the first woman uh, to be held the post of Prime Minister of Serbia. She's also a lesbian, which is extremely unusual among world leaders full stop. And in what is euphemistically known as a socially conservative country, it sends out a very particular signal. In terms of how Anna Banovic performs as Prime Minister, well, Firstly, it's very important to state that Aleksandr Vucic is very much the top dog in Serbia. He runs uh, the entire country as president and the government basically does what he asks them to do. However, it's generally thought that Anna Brnovic is extremely competent in what she does. She presents a very strong face internationally. I've met her many times myself. And uh, in her life before entering the government, she was very highly thought of in business circles. And I know people who worked with with her in those times as well, who rate her very highly. So she's someone who can get things done, someone who can push forward these reform programs that Serbia needs to go through with in order to get its EU accession process uh, motoring along. And uh, she'll be in the job not for the full term, Vucic says, but uh, when she's got some important things completed, she will move on to another role. Hmm. That's very interesting. Now, her sexuality shouldn't matter, but it does. And one of the reasons uh, that it becomes very relevant here is that Euro Pride has been cancelled, which Uh, you would think would be an extraordinary move, given that, that, that she has just been appointed. And it's a funny thing. When I was sending through the ideas for stories that might be around this weekend, Georgina, I said it would be really bad optics to remove Anna Banovic as Prime Minister when Belgrade is preparing to host Europride next month. Uh, you know, one of the largest gay pride events in the world, bringing people together from all across Europe, a week-long series of events culminating in a pride parade. Uh, now, I, what I didn't see coming <laughs> was that uh, Anna Vernovich would be reappointed, but that uh, President Vucic would say, but sorry, we can't hold Europride at this time uh, because the conditions are not quite right. We've got too much going on. We've got a, tensions with Kosovo. We've got a drought. We've got various policey things that we've 
we've got got to worry about. And and he threw in a few little little uh, you know sort of sops here, uh, saying that that protests against Pride, which we've seen in recent weeks, were a theatre of the absurd. And he criticised political parties, and I quote, that live on the hatred they spread against homosexuals. Well, what better way to push back against that uh, by than by cancelling Euro Pride? Seems an extraordinary decision. Um, let's have a look at this deal now between Kosovo and Serbia because, of course, there's been simmering tensions for a long time. Looks like at least some of it's been solved. So we had yesterday afternoon uh, Joseph Borrell, the EU uh, foreign policy chief, uh, dropped a tweet saying, we have a deal. And uh, everybody got very excited going, you what? Because the EU's been mediating talks between Kosovo and Serbia for several weeks now. I mean, it's been mediating talks for years, but in among these recent tensions, it's been trying to get them to agree on two different issues. Now, the headline one, the one which sort of attracts people, is a deal over car number plates, because Kosovo set this deadline of the 1st of September for ethnic Serbs in North Kosovo to hand in their Serbian-issued vehicle license plates and exchange them for license plates which have been uh, issued by the government in Pristina. Uh, This does not go down well with ethnic Serbs in North Kosovo at all. Last time Pristina tried this, they erected blockades and everybody was bracing themselves for, for more disturbances. But this isn't the deal that we've got, Georgina. The deal that we've got is one on identity cards. And that was the other issue, the other less talked about issue, was that uh, Pristina was also going to stop recognising Serbian-issued identity documents. And what we've got here, the deal that we've got, is that Serbia will now, in effect, recognise Pristina-issued identity documents and will allow people to cross borders between Kosovo and Serbia Um, regardless of the documentation they have, whether it's issued by Serbia or Kosovo. Kosovo, uh, on the other hand, will not force uh, anybody who's got a Serbian ID to produce any other sort of document, and they'll be able to cross the border as normal. And I would call that a major concession by Serbia, and it possibly explains why Europride has been cancelled. In other words, that could be President Vucic throwing a bit of the old red meat uh, to some of the more sort of head-the-ball element in his support base. How interesting. Um, Let's turn to look at buses now and 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 rainbow buses which in fact has nothing to do with no. pride <laughs> well it's one of the, it's a shame really isn't it um but <laughs> this is something which amused me for, for the years that i lived in belgrade so i lived in belgrade for five years and frankly you never knew when you were getting on a bus or a tram or a trolley bus what color it might be would it be red would it be orange would it be yellow would it be green would it be blue there were Every colour in the rainbow seemed to be represented. And at the time, I was talking to uh, the, the, the city architect, Militant Follich, as it was at that time. And I said, you know, it, it's bizarre, this, isn't it? Are you going to do something about it? And he said, yes, yes, we're going to have um, a consultation. We'll get people to vote on what colour they want buses to be. And we'll have them all a uniform colour. We get the city looking really smart. And there was a vote and people decided they wanted the buses and everything else to be red. And they did start repainting buses at great cost. But then they also started putting loads of adverts on the sides of buses. The new mayor has decided that these adverts have got to go because they look ugly. Um, But it is now going to reveal exactly how many buses did get painted red and how many were still in this sort of rainbow coalition of colours. So we could be back to the multicoloured bus fleet and won't that be exciting? (laughs) Very exciting indeed. Uh, Finally, a quick look at uh, uh, Albania and the arrest of two Russians and a Ukrainian. 
It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Two <laughs> Russians and a Ukrainian walk into an arms depot. Uh, you know, so, uh, but this is what happened last weekend, actually, was uh, the, the, there was the arrest of uh, two Russians and a Ukrainian at an arms depot. It turns out this was a disused arms depot. And the Albanian authorities got terribly excited, saying they'd found spies who'd been sent in. This was definitely part of the what's going on with Ukraine at the moment, that these people have been sent in by uh, the Kremlin to find out uh, all about, I don't know, Albania's advanced weapons technology. Uh, it's, it, was quite, it was a bit of a stretch to find out the logic of this one from Albania's point of view. Albania is, of course, a NATO member state, so there is that. It's uh, maybe expanding its facilities for NATO, but this wasn't going to be one of them. And now the, 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 one of these people have been arrested saying, we're not spies, we're urban explorers. We're the kind of people who get our kicks from photographing old abandoned infrastructure. And one of the people who have been arrested has indeed uh, 250,000 followers on Instagram, uh, for all of her photos of abandoned, um, or indeed not even particularly abandoned in some cases, structures in the region, in Russia, in Ukraine. And she's really well known in these sort of circles. And uh, the, the father of another one of the people who's been arrested says, it's all a terrible mistake. Uh, but uh, Albania has uh, ploughed on so far with charging them with espionage. Very interesting. It'll be very, very interesting to see where this this leads. I mean, unfortunate that the, that the ethnicity of them, Ukrainian and Russian, of course, that immediately raises red flags. Um, Guy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that was our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. And you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long, it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise. Spain's always been a country of makers. Today it is home to leading designers who marry time-tested traditions with fearless innovation. All informed, of course, by a sunny outlook. Spanish design continues to thrive, with brands such as Gandia Blasco and Ketel leading the outdoor furniture sector, and the likes of Marzet and Santa and Co illuminating hotels, restaurants and homes with timeless lighting. Handcrafts are a mainstay of Spain's creative output, and the country's architects are also wowing the world with commissions that demonstrate an innate understanding of how to live and live well. Fashion designers are flocking to the capital, and homegrown brands are finding their way onto an international stage, hungry for their well-conceived and well-made wares. Spain, we tip our sombrero to you and your healthy, happy world of design. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain. Spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. Coming to you live from Midori House in London, the time here, 9.42. I'm Georgina Godwin and still with me, Terry Stiastini and Tessa Siskovitz. Thank you both uh, for, for being with us. Now, just before, earlier on, we were talking about uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, the very dignified way in which he, he dealt with Liz Truss. Um, there's a lot going on in, in France. You were talking about his speech too, Terry. A uh, big piece on, on, on British-French relations in Politico. 
Uh, yes, that's right. So, um, as you'd expect, Politico uh, following a lot of Europe. It's quite interesting. I mean, we mentioned briefly before uh, the importance for Britain of having kind of you know good relations, rebuilding good relations uh, with the rest of Europe once we got a new prime minister in place. Uh, it's quite interesting in this article. Some former diplomats point out the number of issues uh, that there are that are going to have to be dealt with. I mean, we're talking about you know the the issue of migrants crossing the Channel, for instance, and apparently uh, it says there's a long overdue UK-France summit. Um, there, there was a last UK-France summit in uh, early 2018 and obviously you know, there have been reasons such as lockdown, COVID so forth that we haven't had such a summit um, but it's apparently also unlikely to take place this, this year given that the new British Prime Minister will only be in post uh, from September and one former ambassador here uh, is suggesting that Macron wouldn't be likely to agree to another high-profile summit uh, with Liz Truss at all if she starts to um, push through changes to the Northern Ireland, or pushes through the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill or invokes Article 16 or something like that. So um, a suggestion that France will want to be convinced that there's been more of a, a change of heart because obviously, you know, these things are, you know, it's very big and prestigious and, you know, the idea of having a, a big bilateral summit makes everybody, usually makes everybody look good. Um, but again, according to this article, uh, Liz Truss is seen as uh, Boris Johnson without the jokes. <laughs> And honestly, that, that couldn't be that couldn't be worse. Really. <laughs> With yeah. Boris Johnson without the joke, there's not you know what's left. <laughs> uh, Tess, though, that this is quite a serious row. I mean, France has got a lot of reasons to be cross: post-Brexit fishing rights, Channel migrants, security deal, things like sausages and meat being traded, sewage, uh, <laughs> sewage of course. Um, I mean, there are a, a lot of reasons there. Well, the sewage is, issue is uh, uh, particularly sort of, you know, it's like a psychoanalytically interesting case in point. <laughs> you know, at the end of all this Northern Ireland problems and all the other problems, now we are down to the sewage that is spilling in the wrong direction. So I think when Politico quotes Bolter without the jokes, I think there's a better description that I saw in the Irish Times, which said um, it will be the same chaos without the charisma, because I think that's where we're going into that. The EU policies coming from Britain now are, um, you know, due to the radicalization of British politics towards Europe, she will have to go further if she makes it to down the street, Liz Truss, but she will have to go further down to also satisfy the uh, mood in the party. So we will not see, um, I fear, um, de-escalation on these, uh, all of these different uh, matters that you already mentioned. The only case where probably there will be a good way to go forward with is the Ukrainian policies because the UK has been very strong and uh, Boris Johnson just showed his strong support for the Ukraine again by going to Kiev. Um, and she will not change this, especially not because she's Maggie Thatcher too, and the Iron Lady will sort of stand in for the Ukraine and up to Russia. And that might be a point where sort of European leaders can sort of sit together and have this proposed policy, European policy area that uh, some of the European leaders and the European Union representatives would like to form and include Britain in. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's turn to the United States now, a source of endless entertainment, but actually not funny at all, because it seems that uh, some of the documents that Donald Trump were holding were, were, were about human assets that he may have actually put lives at risk. Terry, what, what more do we know about the, the goings-on at Mar-a-Lago? Well, in some ways, we know a lot more about, you know, we've seen, sort of seen the affidavit that was was published allowing um, um, yeah, everybody to go, to them to go in and, and raid Mar-a-Lago, which has obviously caused Donald Trump to be out. But if you look at the pictures of it, it's it's all almost all redacted. So there's page after page of just like black line, black line, black line, which is, you know, presumably the sources, um, you know, the, the information that the, the FBI and the Department of Justice had, which is led them to, to carry out these raids but we, we know an only a limited amount but there's an amazing story here um, which is picked up in, in The Guardian but it was also from uh, an organisation which investigates uh, kind of corruption I suppose and, and um, they're about a woman who apparently went by the name of Anna de Rothschild who flashed a Rolex on her wrist, drove a new Mercedes um, and managed to get herself into Mar-a-Lago, um, have, her, have herself pictured alongside Donald Trump on, on the golf course. Um, it turns out she is not Anna de Rothschild. She has no relationship to the Rothschild family, which apparently, allegedly, she claimed to have. Uh, her name was actually Inna Yashishin, um, a Russian-speaking Ukrainian, the daughter of a truck driver. Uh, the FBI is asking questions about her business dealings and her charities. Um and this is raising, you know, obviously big questions. So she went to uh, Mar-a-Lago in, in May 2021. Uh, we don't quite know why, but it just suggests that, you know, all of these documents Donald Trump claimed were held safely in, in his cellar. And it turns out that pretty much a lot of people claiming to be people that they were not were able to turn up at Mar-a-Lago and, and wander around pretty much, uh, you know, w- without being stopped and without being questioned about it. So, you know, the, the question of who had access to, you know, Mar-a-Lago and what else, what they knew and what they did. We, we don't really know nearly enough about it. No, but I'm sure it will all come out. Uh, do you think there's any doubt he'll go down? That is a very big question <laughs> because, you know, as we know, uh, against all odds, he made it into the White House in mm. the first place. So we'll see about this. I mean, I would recommend to all of us whenever we throw away the bills for our uh, deliveries or something like that to check carefully if there's any one that says uh, classified secret information <laughs> or one one that I particularly like is the is the no foreign, not releasable to foreign nationals. So if there are any stamps on your documents at home that you find by mistake <laughs> that you took from your office home, that would be a problem. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I just returned from the States on Tuesday and of, I was in liberal New York, so you don't have a lot of Trump sympathy there. But I'm sure that in Florida and in lots of other places in the States, people look at this as a conspiracy against Trump again and some sort of deep state trying to finish him off so I wouldn't be too sure that that you know the obvious that he sort of made a mistake and a grave mistake endangering the security of the United States um, is being seen like that many people will probably side with him in thinking this is one more of these ideas to bring him down. I mean, you, you, you're absolutely right. Of course, there are his diehard supporters, but there's so much now that is being thrown at him. January the 6th, you've got uh, it, it, everything that's happening in Georgia, the court case there about him trying to interfere with elections. Uh, Terry, I mean, surely one of these has got to stick. 
You would think something. I mean, it will be, I mean, if, even if it is, you know, obviously it's a, a serious thing to take uh, classified documents that are supposed to belong to the National Archives. But, you know, in the scale of things, it's probably, you know, one of the, the least shocking. I mean, Donald Trump appears to believe that if you're the president, all the documents are your documents. He didn't really understand the concept that it doesn't belong to you and you don't get to take it home, rip it up, put it down the toilet or do whatever else you, you care to do with it, you know, that it's all supposed to go into the archives and um, and come out to be to be studied and accessed uh, by people later on. But, yeah, as you say, this is just, you know, one of the many, many things that are being uh, investigated. Can I ju- I'm just going to pick up one other thing. So somebody else who managed to get into Mar-a-Lago, this was three years ago, a Chinese national uh, said they claimed to be a member of the, the, the club who wanted to use the pool um, and then claimed to be there to attend another event. Uh, agents found this person was carrying two Chinese passports, $8,000 in cash, four cell phones, a laptop computer, an external hard drive and a thumb drive, but no swimsuit. Cover story. Take your swimsuit if you claim to want to use the pool. Toasty Asni, Tessa Siskelitz, thank you both very much. This is Monocle on Sunday. Finally, on today's programme, it's time to join Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for a roundup of the week's Stranger News Stories. We learned this week that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, generally held to be one of the shabbier compromises in diplomatic history, was in fact fine, actually Good. What? I'm not sure. Yeah, what? Sure. What? Uh-huh. I don't know that one. No, no. Are sure? We learned this on the 83rd anniversary of its signing from the somewhat startling source of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, a country usually much keener to brandish the credentials of its predecessor state, the Soviet Union, as a scourge of Nazis rather than an accessory to them. The outstandingly terrible music now playing in the background is from a weird little video with which Russia's foreign ministry interrupted its usual social media output of just incessant, pitiful, whining nonsense about how horrible everyone is being to them, re the whole entirely unprovoked and utterly deranged assault on a neighbouring sovereign state thing. The subtitles sought to position what was delicately referred to as the Treaty of Non-Aggression between Germany and the USSR as a cunning, if not downright noble, placeholder, which enabled the Soviet Union to eventually fight Germany from a position of strength. Or, as the weird little video puts it, so the war began on strategically more advantageous borders for the Soviet Union. Which is one way to describe invading Poland. (coughs) It's an interpretation, albeit one which neglects any mention of the secret protocol of the pact, which effectively sought to divide Eastern Europe between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and if we might offer further notes, we're not sure we would have included all things considered, specifically like if the wreckage of our armoured columns was presently an art installation on the main drag of the capital city of the country we'd attempted to conquer. This quote from former UK Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, as will now be read by Monocle 24's undetected irony desk chief, Chris Chermak. I must confess to the most profound distrust of Russia. I have no belief whatsoever in her ability to maintain an effective offensive, even if she wanted to. Well, quite. 
We will return to this theme later in today's monologue, which is something to look forward to. For the moment, though, we would appear to have learned that Russia's foreign ministry has not learned that once you find yourself trying to positively recontextualise historical collaboration with Nazi actual Germany, you might want to check if you have somehow inadvertently meandered onto the wrong side of history. Elsewhere on the hapless authoritarianism beat... Yes, you are now hearing the jazz fusion noodlings of Weather Report, and yes, Weather Report absolutely sucked out loud, but they are an appropriate soundtrack to the next bit, so live with it. Uh, okay. Okay. okay, fair enough, but let's move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah, I guess. guess. For we learned that forecasting the weather in Hungary, and you may now see what we've done there, is not for the faint of heart, thin of skin, weak of knee, or saggy of spine. We learned that Hungary's short-tempered government had sacked the country's two senior-most meteorologists for getting the weather wrong. Do we have a clip which suggests someone getting booted down the stairs and their belongings being flung after them? Brilliant. Last Saturday was St Stephen's Day, on which Hungarians traditionally give it up for King Stephen I, who reigned over them circa the early 11th century and performed sterling work fending off the invading legions of the Holy Roman Empire on the recurrent occasions on which the Holy Roman Empire had a pop. A mighty fireworks display was planned along the banks of the Danube... And that is indeed much how it might have gone had the pyrotechnics not been postponed after the now unemployed boffins confidently predicted hosing rain, which did not materialise. So we have learned, not for the first time in very recent history, of the miserable humorless entitlement that invariably underpins authoritarianism, in this case to the satire-defyingly absurd extent of taking umbrage at the weather for defying one's demands. And this is where this week's monologue will return to the theme established earlier on as we attempt to conclude with an at least semi-serious point. Hang on tight, this could go anywhere. This week, specifically Wednesday, saw the coincidence of Ukraine's Independence Day with the half-anniversary of Russia's attempt to ensure that it would be Ukraine's last Independence Day, which means that the rest of us have now been learning for six months a bracing lesson in the courage, resilience and resourcefulness of Ukraine's people and a hopefully much more lasting one in the folly of hoping that monsters will grow less monstrous if we indulge their imaginary grievances. The latter, at least, was one we should not have had to learn the hard way. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. And that's all we have time for for this edition of Monocle on Sunday, which was produced by Rhys James and Nora Hall. And, of course, the programme will return at the same time next week. Only next week, Emma Nelson will be back in the seat. I think she's been on a lovely holiday and uh, I've been sitting in for her these past couple of Sundays, but she'll be back again uh, next week. Uh, Coming up uh, a little bit later on today at noon London time, I'll be speaking to Alex Harvey. Now, he is a British writer, film producer, 
and director. Uh, he's based in Los Angeles and he's just written a wonderful book about Tom Waits and uh, his decade in LA, his formative decade in LA. So that's coming up a little bit later on today. I do hope that you can join us for that too. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>